This the remix. Yeah, I, I, you know, again, great question. We saw the game the other night. Certainly in Buffalo, the wind is, is an issue, and, and uh, we're always keeping our eye on the weather. We, the thing about the kicking game um, in a windy stadium is it's the same for both teams. You know, people like to say, well, the home team has an advantage. They played in all the time. Well, the wind isn't the same all the time, right? So um, we, did, we had a little bit of breeze out there today. It was actually good for us. And during the course of the year, even though we know we're playing at home, we like to use the wind um, to do some of the things that we're going to do in the kicking game when we have the ability to use it. So um, it's going to be a factor. We'll just have to adjust and deal with it, um, as I'm sure they are. Whacking that thing around. Not really. I mean, you could find a smart Alec bus driver in Kansas City who made some snide comments when we got on the bus. Maybe that's why we drove around the stadiums to tick him off. You know, this is ridiculous. Next question. They fake a toss. Now Mahomes looking for the end zone. Pass caught. Touchdown, Kansas City. On an out pattern in the end zone to Byron Pringle. Just crushed my dreams. Boom. Sadness. That's the one. I am very excited for Victory Lap 2.0. I hope Rich Bisaccia fires up the bus and drives around Arrowhead. By the way, you think that bus driver's still there? Nah. Come on. You got to give him this job again, right? Nah, nah, nah. I think somebody's angry. I think somebody's angry. I don't think he's there anymore. You got to sneak him in. Get him on the bus and be like, (laughs) remember me? I'm back. I'm back. Only if if the Chiefs win. He shows up to drive the bus afterwards. Only if the Chiefs win. All right. Need a ride? So, (laughs) Raiders, Kansas City. Uh, Raiders playoff hopes might be on the line. I do have a, a specific, like, game planning type question for you because one of the big conversations after the last meeting with the Chiefs was the Raiders playing cover three because Patrick Mahomes, you know, it's been his worst year. He hasn't been as good this year as he has been in the past. And there's been a lot of talk about the the cover two playing two high safeties against Patrick Mahomes is a way to, you know, limit their big plays and slow him down more. The Raiders play more cover three than anybody. They don't play two high safeties. Jonathan Abram is more of a box safety than a coverage safety. They play a lot of cover three more than anybody else in the NFL. They started to play some cover two in the second half of that game against Kansas city. And Abram was in coverage more and got beat. So I'm, I'm curious, just like, w- what does Gus Bradley do? Like, what do you think the answer is? Should they stick with cover three because that fits Jonathan Abram and their personnel better? Or should they play cover two where even though it doesn't fit their personnel as well, it's what's given the chiefs more trouble this year. I think they should do with whatever's making the Chiefs struggle, you know, and, and that cover two is what it is. And this is the, this is the thing about it is when the chiefs play the Raiders, they look for number 24. They look for Jonathan Abram. So they try to go after him and exploit what his weaknesses is, which is what you just said in coverage. You know, he's just not that good. So this is a game, in my opinion, I think that the Raiders need to uh, put Tyree, Tyree Gillespie on the field more, you know, give him an opportunity because he may be able to match up. Now, I know he's a young dude. He's a rookie. He hasn't had a lot of burn, but he's athletic and he can run. And so maybe there's an opportunity that he could fill that void that Jonathan Abram would have if he's out there in that in that cover two scheme where it'd be exposing him more. So I'm not necessarily just saying put Jonathan Abram on the sideline, but you might want to sprinkle in some of the, the looks that have given Patrick Mahomes fits because, look, if there's a formula that works, go with it. It's a copycat league. Don't be afraid to be a copycat. What linebacker is healthy enough to cover Travis Kelsey? <laughs> well, <laughs> Will Compton. I mean, yeah, right. I mean, it's gonna be, it's gonna be, have to be probably uh, Divine Diablo, you know, and he's a safety. 
that's actually playing the uh, linebacker role, you know, that they have him move up. And he's a rookie. I mean, this, there's a lot of young, young, and young on this Raiders team that is going to be expected to do some some big things, including try to cover Travis Kelsey. But, I mean, if there's a certain scheme that's working, you got to at least it, – it's on you to at least attempt to do it. I know that it's not necessarily what the Raiders do, but you've got to attempt to do it because it's proven that – at the very least, it slows Kansas City down, and that's what you need. You need an opportunity to slow those guys down. So the idea of giving like Gillespie uh, some snaps in the secondary there, Jonathan Abram has played every single defensive snap for the Raiders this year. He has played more than anybody else. Trayvon Merrick is the only other one that's over 93%. Mm-hmm. I would be shocked if they took Abram off the field. Agreed. So given the linebacker injuries, would you almost shift Abram to a linebacker and let Gillespie play safety? Like, do you think that's the best course of action? You know what? That's not a bad idea at all. It really isn't. And and that's what he's better suited for anyway, is playing that linebacker role, which is what he's been doing throughout the course of the season, playing that box safety, that Jamal Adams type role, you know? And so if he can do that and fill that void, but again, Kansas city, man, they're looking for 24. They're looking for him, and they're going to try to exploit him, and that's what they do. They do what Bill Belichick does really well, which is find the weak link, find the mouse in the house, and go and attack it. So that's what Andy Reid's going to do. That's what Eric Bieniemy is going to do. Where's 24? Okay, let's create this mismatch, and let's take advantage of him. All right, this Raiders team is 6-6. Six and six. Um, They have been, for the last few weeks, sort of teetering on the edge of are they still in contention for a playoff spot or not. Do you is this the week like do you believe this is the week if they do in fact lose to Kansas City that it sort of puts an end to their playoff hopes? Yeah, I mean you drop under 500, I think I think absolutely. And I think most most Raider fans will tell you that they probably felt like their playoff hopes uh, were gone when they lost to Cincinnati. And I, I think that that was really the big game. Like, you had to win that one. It's an AFC game. Uh, I just thought that that was a big one. Then you go and you win in Dallas and so it gives the fan base some juice. Like, okay, Let's go. You know, it's still got an opportunity. And then to be a playoff team, in my opinion, you've got to put together a win streak. So, okay, you beat the Cowboys. Now, double down and beat Washington. I know these are NFC opponents, but you beat Washington. Now you're feeling good about yourself. You're sitting there at 7-5. But to win one, lose one, win one, lose one, that's, not, that's a recipe for being Jason Garrett, which is just average. <laughs> and so uh, you, can't, you can't be average and think you're going to make the playoffs. So, like, so Raiders lose this weekend. They would fall to 6-7. and seven. Mm-hmm. Depending on what happens with some other teams, there's still a chance they're only one game back right. off the last wild card spot because uh, Chargers, Bengals, and Bills are all just one game ahead of them right now. It's it's going to be weird because if you're one game out of the playoffs, you still are sort of looking around saying, well, you got a shot. But the bigger issue isn't going to be the games they have to make up. It'll be the teams they have to pass. Because if the Raiders lose this week, right, they're going to fall behind Pittsburgh. They're going to stay behind Indy. And they'll be behind Buffalo, Cincinnati, and L.A. for those wild card spots, plus all the teams that are leading their divisions. And then potentially behind the Browns, too, if they are able to beat the Ravens. So it's even if they are only one game back at the playoff spot, you're talking about having to pass four or five teams to get into that final wild card spot. And that's where I think a loss this week kind of ends the Raiders hopes because it's going to be so difficult to, even though it's one game to make up one game or two games on like five different teams. That's where the issue comes in is when you need more than one team to sort of end the season poorly, when you need four or five to do it, it's extremely unlikely. Well, and the only thing that'd be going in the Raiders' favor is that they play all those teams. Yes, that you is know, true. Yeah. That's the one thing that they can go have going for them, but that's why that loss to Cincinnati was so big. 
you know, they, they have the tiebreaker over Pittsburgh. They beat them. They beat the Ravens. You know, they beat, uh, they beat Denver earlier. They have Denver again. Cleveland they have coming up, you know, next Saturday. I mean, there's the, – again, and that's why it's so maddening. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because every time you want to put some dirt on them and bury them, you realize, well, if this happens and that happens, and that's why I hate playing the what-if game. Honestly, if you just go out and win your games that you're supposed to win, then you're not even in this position. You're feeling pretty good. I mean, even going back to the first time they played Kansas City at Allegiant Stadium, that was literally a first-place game on the line, and the Raiders couldn't they, – I mean, they played with their food. You know, they just, they just found a way to fumble <laughs> it away, and it ended up being a blowout at the end. But you have all this opportunity. It goes back to sense of urgency. You don't see this team play with sense of urgency. So I'll say this. They lose this game to Kansas City. I mean, I, I don't think that there's a, a, a playoff happening for them, but they'll probably still mathematically be there. I just don't think it's a playoff team. So, they, yeah, they've got to win against Kansas City, and then they've got to f- find a way to turn around and beat Cleveland the next week to, to be a real, okay, this team does have an opportunity. Because right now, again, I just feel like they're a, a team that's going to win one, lose one, win one, lose one, and that's not a, a winning recipe at all. The fun part about this season is, like, oh, we can do it now, but at the end of it when we – look back on it is they've played so many close games mm-hmm. that it, it we're genuinely going to be talking about if they were like 1% better, right? They're a playoff team. Now they're not on the Vikings level where they've played 12, one possession right. games so far this year, but like you go back to early in the season, they beat the Ravens in overtime. They beat the dolphins in overtime, right? It, yep. We're two Cowboys plays in overtime. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're two plays in, in either in both of those right. games and the Raiders have two more losses on their right. record. And we're talking about a completely failed season oh, and yeah. everything's a nightmare. But then at the same time, you look, you know, they lose to Washington by two mm-hmm. right after they beat the Cowboys in overtime. Like right. we're going to look back on this and there's going to be so many games where it's like, wow, you were a play away from changing the entire outcome of the season. And you know, ultimately, if they don't get it done, that's going to be what's going to cause, I assume, some massive turnover in the offseason. We still don't really know exactly what the offseason is going to look like. But if they don't make the playoffs, I assume we're going to have some significant turnover with this team. I mean, yeah, think about it. If they lose those overtime games that they won, I mean, that's three that's three more losses on their on their uh, record, you know, mm-hmm. and that literally would be a three-win team. I mean, just, yeah, you're right. One play here, one play there, and a lot of things have changed. Now, fortunately for them, they were able to win it. those games. But, man, that's that's crazy to even think about that. Uh, yeah, so what that means is that they're going to overtime with the Chiefs, right? Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> I mean, hey, look, they got a winning record in overtime. They're good. They're 3-0. They're, yeah, exactly. So if that's what it takes, maybe that's what one of the keys to the game. Just get to overtime. They've, they've got to be the best in the league this year, right? I can't imagine anybody else has three overtime wins. I don't think so. I'd have to look that up. But that's a that's something right there to think about, yeah. something to talk about. Because, again, if you can make overtime, you got to feel pretty good about your chances. I, you don't want to be tied with the Raiders. And I think <laughs> if, I re- if, if I remember correctly – Every time they've gone to overtime, they've allowed the other team to have the ball. Um, oh man, now you're gonna give me lines. I, I know, I know. Baltimore had it because Lamar yeah. Jackson fumbled, and I'm almost certain Miami had it too. Like it, it's not. My point is like the, the other team got the ball. They right. did get the ball. I don't know if they started off with the ball, but they definitely yeah. got the ball because Baltimore. Remember, the Raiders were about to score, and then all of a sudden it was that yes. that yes. tip. Like weird type <laughs> interception at the goal line off Willie Sneed's hands and yes. interception. Yes. So uh, basically, the point is like you have NFL overtime where obviously if you win the coin toss, go score a touchdown, Game you win. Over. The other team doesn't yep. even touch the ball. Like that's not been the case for the Raiders no. overtime. They've been so bizarre that the Raiders have a like the other team has had the ball and could have beaten the Raiders with a touchdown drive every single time, and the Raiders haven't let it happen. 
And they're, they're good in overtime. They're just a good overtime. And they've all team. they've won all of them by field goals. They have scored no touchdowns in overtime, well, right? Well, no, the head you got Daniel Carlson, of course. The head coach is a special teams yeah. guy. Why you don't need touchdowns in overtime? You need, you need field goals. Hey, look, man, the field goal kicker and the punter got four year <laughs> contract extensions. Don't you feel bad for the long snapper, Trent Siege? Well, hey, look, he just got huh? back from COVID, so he's just happy to be back on the field. He ain't worried about the contract right now. He was on the COVID-19 list, so he's like, hey, man, I'm just glad to be back in the roster. Now, next next year we'll talk about another contract because someone's got to get the ball to, to back to the holder so so Carlson could, could kick these and, and Cole could boom these punts. Uh, it's bad when the best two players on your team are the <laughs> Field goal kicker and the punter. Hey, don't disrespect Sutton Smith like that. Sutton Smith led the nation in sacks a few years ago. All right, coming up next, it's Bischoff's Briefs. Get ready. Soccer's coming to Vegas. Coming up in about, what, 20 minutes. We got Disney on ice tickets to give away. It's the Press Box Holiday Hookup on Ice. So make sure you stay tuned for that. But Bischoff's Briefs today. First, Q, let me ask you a question. (laughs) How many soccer games have you watched this year? Um, I watched the one that was at Allegiant Stadium. Okay. Um, and it was a oh man, it was Mexico. Yes, it was Mexico the US and won. USA, and there was more Mexico fans there than there was USA fans. But USA won that one. They did. It was great. I See, was at that game. I'm up phenomenal. on my soccer, man. I'm, I got I got game. Huh, I'm boy? pumped about it. I'm pumped about <laughs> it. So, uh, there is a really good chance that Major League Soccer is going to put a team. In Las Vegas, Don Garber, the commissioner of Major League Soccer, had his uh, sort of State of the Union press conference earlier this week. And, like, I haven't heard a commissioner talk about expansion like it's a foregone conclusion before, like he was. Uh, They seem to have an ownership group in place. It's led by a guy named Wes Edens, who owns the Milwaukee Bucks, but also owns Aston Villa, a Premier League team in England. He's apparently leading the group that would own this team in Las Vegas But one of the big questions, or at least questions for us, because we have gotten literally no details on it, is like stadium. What's like, where are they going to play? What's going to happen there? And Don Garber sort of alluded to the idea that they're going to have some sort of announcement in the near future about a facility in Las Vegas for Major League Soccer, um, which would imply that they are pretty far along in that process. Uh, I don't think you're saying, hey, we might have an announcement soon if you haven't started that process. So presumably, Wes Edens, Major League Soccer have some sort of plan in place that they are close to pulling off or at least close to announcing uh, about what stadium or where the stadium would be or how it's going to be built in Las Vegas, which leads me to a few questions about a soccer stadium in Las Vegas. The first one is, is sort of an obvious one that I think we all know the answer to, but is there going to be a roof, right? There, there should be a roof. Major League Soccer be. plays in the summer. It's right. very hot here. A yeah. roof would be nice. I am curious how essential Major League Soccer would deem a roof, right? Like, is Las Vegas not getting a team if we if there's no stadium with a roof, right? Like, if, if that's not an option, does Vegas just get booted? Or would they potentially do it without a roof on a stadium? Because, you know, Las Vegas lights, it's a lesser league, but they play in the summer here at Cashman and that obviously doesn't have a roof. So it's possible, but I do think you're putting a roof on a stadium. If you're building a brand new one for a team that plays in the summer, the second question I have is probably the biggest one. And that's how's this getting paid for? Like (laughs) we have literally no details on this whatsoever. As far as financing goes. And there's a few different ways this could go because 
Wes Edens, he owns the Bucks. He owns Aston Villa. One of his partners that owns Aston Villa is apparently going to be a part of this group too. And all I know about this guy is his Wikipedia page says he is one of the richest, uh, uh, richest Africans in the world. So nice. he's apparently worth like $8 billion. So there's the possibility that these two are just going to build the stadium themselves, that they're just going to come here and say, yeah, we can afford, you know, a, I don't know how much, $750 million, a billion-dollar stadium. We can do that. No problem. But sports in the United States often doesn't happen where somebody just says, yeah, I'll build it myself. There's often a, hey, how much money can I get right. from the government there? So, I'm, I again, we have no details on this. We do know the A's and their tease of Las Vegas. We've heard from Steve Sisolak, the governor, who's come out and said there's no appetite for the state of Nevada to increase any sort of taxes and help the A's pay for a stadium. But Sisolak has said things along the lines of, hey, Clark County might be able to help with infrastructure, right? Hey, you build a stadium, you need a new exit ramp off the freeway, or you need a wider road going into there that that can help be helped by Clark County. So there's two kind of options there. Either one, Major League Soccer somehow did a better job than the A's and they're going to get some sort of tax increase somewhere to help pay for a significant portion of the team. Or maybe they come in and say, Hey, we're going to build the stadium, but we need your help to improve the roads around whatever location we pick. So people can get to and from the stadium. All of that. We don't know anything about. And those are big questions that sort of remain about, Hey, if you're putting an MLS team here and they're building their own stadium, what what happens with the cost? How is that being paid for? And then, big question is location. Um, I, and the, the location part of it to me that I'm curious about is major league soccer's thought process. Because if we go under the assumption that they build a 30,000 seat stadium here or something in that right. neighborhood, yeah. my guess is that their, their goal would be to have like a 20,000 or more average attendance for games, right? If it's anything under 20,000, it's probably not great, but if they can hit 20,000 and presumably more, but if they can hit at least 20,000, that's pretty good. And so my question is for Major League Soccer, and the location might tell us this, does Major League Soccer think that is possible with locals? Because if they think they can get 20,000 locals to attend each MLS game, then you can build it in a suburb. You can put it in Henderson. You can put it in Summerlin. But if they don't think that locals can support 20,000 plus per game, it's you know 17 games a year, maybe 20, depending on how many how far they go in some tournaments, if they don't think the locals can support that, then it has to be by the strip, right? If you're counting on, hey, we're going to put it in Vegas, right. we'll get 12,000 locals and we need 8,000 people from out of town to show up to every game, then you're going to want to put it by the strip. And me personally, I would think that's a bad sign for the market and a bad sign for putting a team in Vegas if you're saying, hey, we got to have tourists to make it work. But that's the last question is location. And I think that'll tell us a lot about the way Major League Soccer views Las Vegas as a market and how many locals they think will be attending games. Well, let me ask you this. As a guy who obviously you've been here for a very long time and you know the climate and you know the soccer world a lot better than I do, would an area like Las Vegas with the locals support that many? Needing 17,000 uh, at a game or, you know, whatever, just under uh, 20,000 at a game uh, each and every game, would they be able to support that? Because me, I look at it and say I don't, I don't see – 17, 18, 19, 20,000 locals supporting it, but I don't know the landscape of soccer like you do. So the Hispanic part of Las Vegas is the part that I'm, I'm, I, I don't know what they would do about major league soccer, because like you said, you watch the gold cup and it was 90 plus percent right. Mexican national team mm -hmm. fans and 10% USA fans, right? 
Liga MX is the Mexican league, and it is the most watched soccer league in the United States. More than Major League Soccer, more than the Premier League. Liga MX is the most watched one here. So I don't know. There's There are a ton of soccer. There are enough soccer fans here to absolutely support made to support a soccer team. Right. I just don't know if they would all jump on board a major league soccer team. I I don't know the answer to that. There's enough of them here and if for whatever reason they were like, "No, I only care about Liga MX," then no, I don't think it works here. I yeah. I don't think there's enough if you don't get that market. But if they're like, "Yeah, of course, like it's major league soccer. Let's go. It's in my hometown." Then I think it's a no-brainer and and that, that Vegas will absolutely kill it. I just I don't know how that market responds to Major League Soccer because it's not something in this country that the the Hispanic portion of this country cares as much about when you compare it to, say, Liga MX or even the Mexican national team. So I I think there's a chance that it's awesome and it, it just blows up and it's a great market, but I think there's also a chance that they don't get that part of the market and it's, yeah, struggling in attendance and sort of at the lower part of the, the league every year. I think it's something that's near the strip. I think you got to put it near the strip. I really do. I just I, – I don't know if – I know with the fans, like you mentioned, that there's enough to support it, no doubt about it. But will they support it consistently? I think you got to have that boost. You got to have that bump from the tourists as well that would come there and say, "Hey, man, let's hang out in Las Vegas and let's take this in as well." I just think that that makes the most sense. Yeah, and so that's again, I'm I'm curious location wise where they put it because the one spot that I can remember being uh, talked about was south of the strip sort of you know halfway in between like the south point and the strip so okay. it wasn't exactly walkable from anywhere right. in the strip you'd have to get in a car or something and get there so i i don't know where they would go that would be closer to the strip that would be a better idea so again a lot of questions even though right. major league soccer is acting like they're very far along on this so i'm i'm fascinated to see very curious what their announcements end up being because it I think we're getting a team. Like, I, I think that's yeah, about yeah, as, yeah. as close to a done deal as you can have without them actually announcing it. But I am curious what they do stadium wise and everything from that point forward, because it's listen from the money side, the location side, like it's a big deal what you do with all of that. And we know absolutely nothing about it. Coming up next, we'll be joined by Pete Sweeney from Arrowhead pride to get into the Raiders and chiefs. Joining us now from Arrowhead Pride is Pete Sweeney. I joined Pete yesterday on an Arrowhead Pride podcast. You can find that on Twitter. Um, Pete, I saw I saw you guys tweet out uh, something earlier, or it was yesterday. Uh, are we considering the Chiefs' defense better than the Chiefs' offense now? I think currently it's hard to argue that, and thank you for having me on. It's just it's not like the offense isn't there. I mean, I think Raiders fans would probably know that 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 better than other fan bases at this point because they had their best offensive game against of the season against them. It hasn't been repeated. It hasn't been consistent. It was for three years, really. You know, you, you think about the, the years that went into this, of 18, 19, and 20, yeah, there were some down games, but it never was to the point of where you'd have games where the offense felt non-existent, especially after what has become famous in Andy Reid's opening script. And now you're at a point where the defense is just a more consistent thing than the offense. And what's wild about that is it's the same year in which for the first four games, the defense was historically bad. So it has been a very, very interesting chief season to wrap your head around for, for a lot of reasons. What has defensive coordinator Steve Spagnola done to get that defense to go from being as bad as it was early in the season to where it is right now and the leader of the clubhouse in the Chiefs? Yeah, so 
I, I, I think when we saw how bad the defense was to start the year, we were asking Steve Spagnuolo these types of questions. And the one thing that he would always say is, you know, we are missing a couple guys. We kind of need to, to get a little bit better when it comes to uh, making better reads and, and whatnot. But the injury thing stuck out to me, and I'm like, well, this is just a guy making an excuse because there are injuries on every team throughout the league. But then if you really dug in, Chris Jones, the Chiefs' best defensive player, at least in the front, he had torn ligaments in his wrist, and he was a shell of himself. The Chiefs ended up shutting him down for two weeks. Frank Clark pulled one hamstring in training camp, then he pulled the other hamstring. And so he entered the season hurt, and then it almost took him, like I would say, four or so weeks to get back into football shape because he basically was entering the lineup out of the summer. Darren Reed, because he didn't have any elite players surrounding him, or at least healthy elite players, was kind of invisible. And then, you know, you, you were trying to maybe have Chris Jones play the edge because you didn't really have an answer outside. And then all of a sudden, Chris Jones has the break, and he comes back and finally looks as healthy as he's going to be, at least this year. I'm sure he's going to have offseason surgery, but he looks normal now. Frank Clark came into his own, and then you injected Melvin Ingram in the mix, and we didn't really know what to expect from Melvin Ingram with the trade for the Pittsburgh Steelers and the sixth rounder going to Pittsburgh. And Ingram, to me, and I've said this a lot in Kansas City radio, he just looks like a player that you shouldn't have traded, especially to an AFC contender. And you have a Pittsburgh Steelers team. Like, let's say the Chiefs go through this, and, and let's say they lose to the Raiders or they lose to the Chargers on Thursday Night Football. They might be vying for the wild card position that the Steelers are not going to get because Melvin Ingram is having such an impact. And so it starts with the defensive line, and then the Chiefs got their linebackers back, and Willie Gay and Anthony Hitchens, who both missed time. And then in their secondary, Charvarius Ward missed time, Jerry Steve missed time. Now Rashad Benson is missing time. So they're just getting healthier. And it, it seems to be starting from the front and all the way back. As you guys know, if you can get a pass rush going, it makes every level of the defense better. And I think that's what you've seen in Kansas City. So it's a little bit of health combined with, I think, them coming into their own and playing together. On the offensive side, like how much there's been a lot that's been made of Patrick Mahomes against two deep safeties and how that's caused some struggles. How real is that? Like how much is that the biggest issue with the Chiefs offense? Yeah, it's been a lot of Patrick Mahomes having to change his game in a sense. And I think they're trying to rebuild his brain on the fly a little bit where I think defenses have essentially told these two deep safeties, like, we don't want you ever really even falling for a run at all. Let's just drop back and just make sure that they're not going to beat us, you know, the 15 to 20 yards down the field. And it's really taking a hit into the opportunities that you might see downfield for a guy like Tyree Kill or on the other side, what would be a Byron Pringle who's lesser known, maybe a Josh Gordon. Um, now that Sammy Watkins is not there. And then in, in the intermediate where Travis Kelsey you know, t- typically lives, they're doubling and bracketing and roughing them up at the line of scrimmage in the first five yards. So it's de-arming them in a sense. And then what I think teams are also doing is they're playing some contain on Mahomes who, you know, his he used to really favor breaking out a couple times a game and, and scrambling. And Mahomes has really had to trust his phone pocket presence while also injecting five new starters along the offensive line. And it led to him facing the first real adversity of his career because he's having to essentially retrain his muscles on the fly in front of everyone in an NFL season. I, I think typically when you're in a sense rebuilding a quarterback mentally, you'd like to do that in the offseason. 
where you have six months to really work on him and really show him, really work on his footwork. But the Chiefs kind of got shell-shocked, I think, in front of America. And you slowly but surely, I think, honestly, have seen Mahomes get more comfortable. He has not yet consistently hit the shots downfield. But just watching this guy, I just tend to really think it's a matter of time. Now, it's a catch-22 because we are in week 13. and So you keep saying, yeah, the offense will figure it out. Well, is it going to be week 18? Are we going to be saying the same thing? And so what is real here? And, and you're left with that question, and that's kind of my explanation of it. What I think hurts the Raiders, and we were talking a little bit about this yesterday, is the cover three and the lack of the two safeties. You opened my eyes in the sense that Abram can be a real problem, and perhaps that's what led to the success. So I've actually cautioned people in Kansas City, like if the Chiefs go out and have a nice offensive game, like let's calm down and let's see it on Thursday night as well because I don't necessarily think it'll mean the offense is fixed. You mentioned the offensive line, and obviously that was something that was an area of concern coming off the Super Bowl. The, the Chiefs went out there, addressed it, you know, put together a whole new one, uh, going to making a trade for Orlando Brown, who is a great uh, run blocker, great run blocker. He did a lot of that in Baltimore. How has he progressed as far as a pass blocker uh, so far with Kansas City? Yeah, I think playing with Mahomes is a little bit of a different animal. You would have thought that Brown might have had an advantage on this since Lamar Jackson obviously moves around quite a bit. Wasn't really the case. You know, I, I think maybe they're a little bit more different than, than we realize. And like I said, as they're trying to build Mahomes more into a pocket quarterback, um, it, it's been a little bit different for him. But I, I really think you've seen him progress as the year has gone along. The interior of the Chiefs has been outstanding all year. And so that's helped him as well, where, where Mahomes kind of knows that he has at least those guys in front of him and can step up a little bit. And I think that helps Orlando Brown. I mean, I remember Pat McAfee made this joke one time, and it was after the Chiefs played the Dolphins, where Mahomes just snaps the ball and runs directly back for 16 yards and then flings it downfield and completes the pass. Like, can't really do that with Orlando Brown. He's not that type of <laughs> offensive lineman. So I think it's more playing in that, like, three to five yards as you snap the football, and I think that's helped Brown as well. Chiefs have kind of had a rotation of right tackle simply because of injuries, but the veteran and Andrew Wiley has seemed to uh, step up there a little bit. Lucas Niang is on his way back. Mike Remmers is, is injured right now. So the rest of the lines look good, and I think what's also really helped is that Trey Smith, who was a six-rounder rookie, and Creed Humphrey, who was a second-rounder, are two of the best interior players in the league right now. And so, you know, when you talk about the Chiefs-Raiders rivalry, that hurts a little bit in the sense that they can pay these guys on their rookie contract for a while now. With, with Mahomes having that big deal. And that's going to be a significant advantage just because they look like veterans right now. And so that's really helped Brown as well. But Brown, you would think, would not would be the one guy who wasn't the question. And of the four guys who've been in there throughout the year, Brown's been the biggest question. But like I've kind of said, he's, he's been improving steadily. Uh, all right. How, what do you think mindset-wise the Chiefs have for the Raiders? Obviously the Raiders won in Kansas City last year, so obviously they know the Raiders can beat them. But like, do they actually view the Raiders as a legit division contender or more just kind of like a nuisance that's kind of there? Probably the latter right now. I think what's tough is at the beginning of the year, it seemed like the Raiders had announced themselves. And, man, I, you know, for your greatest rival, I, I don't think anyone would wish some of the stuff that has gone on in Vegas to anyone, right? I mean, with the coach um, and, and that outside stuff, with the rug situation, and it's just been that out of, out of, of, of off-the-field type of stuff that you really can't control that I, I think has ruined the Raiders as an up-and-coming contender. Now it's going to be a question of what they do in the offseason to me. Um, I, I tend to think Mayock might get another look because it seemed like he might have been handcuffed by Gruden 
So maybe Mayock stays, but who's going to be the next head coach? Is Derek Carr the guy? If Derek Carr's not the guy, who's the next quarterback? And it, it, it's tough when I, I look at the Raiders outside looking in because I think they were right there, and now all of a sudden it does feel another three years away. And I, I tend to think Kansas City feels similarly. Like To me, at, at this point, it's a Chiefs or, or Chargers type of, of race um, when for a little bit here it did seem like four teams all had a chance. Now I think the Raiders and Broncos could play themselves into a wild card opportunity, but the division just feels like a two-team race, at least to me. How big of a deal is the lap around Arrowhead Stadium, the bus ride that apparently got a lot of talk <laughs> and a lot of play? Is that still a big yeah. deal, or is that not really nothing? I don't think it's a big deal now that the Chiefs have won two in a row. I think going into that game last year, the second game last year, was a, quite a big topic of conversation. But, um, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a, a, as big a deal anymore, especially because I, I think it was Gruden-driven. You know, and now that he's sort of out of the mix and, and Rich Basaccia, uh, again, I don't cover him day to day, but on the outside looking in, he looks like the nicest man in the world. Uh, that's what's been tough about the, the Chiefs Raiders rivalry recently. Like, Derek Carr and Rich Basaccia are just like great human beings, so it's a little bit tougher <laughs> to hate the Raiders uh, as a Chiefs person. Uh, um, but yeah, I think now that Gruden is out of the mix, that kind of has, has died down. Um, it'll be funny if. You know the Raiders were to upset the Chiefs and do it again. For example, I think that would be uh, a fun little yeah. But yeah, right now it, it doesn't seem like it's much of a story in Kansas City anymore. Okay, how much would you enjoy for the sake of the rivalry if the Raiders hired Eric Bieniemy as their head coach? I would love it. I'm to the point. I mean, I've covered Eric Bieniemy since he became a, a offensive coordinator. I mean, I've been covering the team since 14. You know, speaking of great human beings, uh, he, he's another one. And I, I'm to the point, and I've told Chiefs fans this too, like. It doesn't matter if he goes to the Broncos, Chargers, or Raiders. Just get this guy a job, I, because the, the the coaching carousel. It seems like you're when you're a candidate, you have a window, mm-hmm. and we, we gotta be getting to the end of the the enemy window. I mean, I tend to think the NFL really wants him hired for obvious reasons, um, just as a league. But to me, he deserves it, and I don't care if it's with the Raiders, the Broncos. I mean, it could be any team at this point. Um, you know, I, I just hope he gets the opportunity because he deserves it. He's been here since Mahomes became. A Super Bowl, two AFC titles, and I know Andy Reid has a lot to do with that. But if you're going to try to find a head coach, who better to mentor a head coach than an Andy Reid or or what would be a Bill Belichick? Um, the Belichick coaches have been a little bit less successful than they probably thought they would be. But uh, for me, I just think the enemy deserves that opportunity. Yeah, no, I think you're right, and I think that you know there's a lot of conversation around him. How much do you think it hurts though, because you know the Chiefs go so deep into the playoffs each and every year, and he, you know, the the cycling is pretty much done by the time the Chiefs are done. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's fair. Um, you know, because teams have a, a couple guys they end up wanting, mm-hmm. so if the enemy ends up being on a short list, and the names start going off the board, teams feel pressure to lock up their coach. And it, it, it has hurt him. I, I really feel that way um, in, the, in the sense that he really can't fully commit to an interview because the Chiefs are playing until early February or mid-February. So in a sense, it's a good problem to have, but it's not really fair to the man. And I, I wish there was some kind of way around the rules that the league could make teams wait to a certain amount of time before they can offer a, a coach. And it's tough, though, because, I mean, you know, you're talking about – like a league that has a legal tampering period that nobody follows, um, <laughs> you know, where deals are done in the off season and like people just know and they just don't talk. And then 
there's a reason that once the legal tampering period hits, that like 20 deals hit at once because this is this is it. You know, it's just hard to control that. So I don't know if I even really have a good answer, but it, it does suck, and I think it does hurt the NFL. Well, he is Pete Sweeney from Arrowhead Pride. You can follow him on Twitter at PG Sween or Arrowhead Pride at Arrowhead Pride. Pete, thank you so much for joining us this morning. All right, fellas, enjoy the game. So there is Pete Sweeney from Kansas City. All right, it's time for the Press Box Holiday Hookup on Ice. We've got four tickets to Disney on Ice. It is coming to Thomas and Mac January 6th through the ninth, You will also be in to win a 55-inch 4K smart TV that we're giving away just in time for the holidays. It's the Press Box Holiday Hookup on Ice. Four tickets to Disney on Ice, plus a chance to win a 55-inch TV. We will take caller number 11 at 702-364-1100. That's 702-364-1100. Caller number 11's taking home Disney on Ice tickets. This team has captured the hearts of the Iowa State fans, and, and not just because they're winning, but how they're winning, and the way they're playing, and the way they leave it out on the floor. That's, it's been incredible. 73 to 53, the final. You're locked in the press box. TJ Otzelberger is 9-0 and at Iowa State. They beat Iowa last night, as you just heard there, by 20. They beat Iowa State. They were projected to lose that game and won by 20. Apparently, the best thing you can do as a UNLV basketball coach is leave UNLV. (laughs) Chris Beard and Otzelberger are I mean, even Lon Kruger. Yeah, very good. Uh, Do you want to say congratulations to William? He won the Press Box Holiday Hookup. He's got the four-pack of tickets to Disney on Ice. All right, Q, I got a question for you. Okay. How good is Hugh Jackson going to be at Grambling State? Man, I don't know if you've been following me on Twitter, but I have been <laughs> pumped up about this. I'm so excited about Coach Jackson getting this opportunity because I think, and this is just me personally, I thought he was a head coach when he was uh, with the Raiders. I thought he was a really good offensive mind. Team was a little undisciplined, but what Raider team hasn't been a little <laughs> undisciplined? His offensive mind is very, very good. He had a bunch of guys. You go back and look at that roster, he had a bunch of guys that were – uh, overachieving. I'll tell you what, it wouldn't be third and six and him not uh, having his quarterback throw past the sticks. I'm, I'm just saying, he would, they wouldn't be throwing two-yard passes and expecting Josh Jacobs to break it and get a first down or get into the end zone. He was a very good, creative offensive mind. I, I, I'm excited about his opportunity. You'll have to help me out. Where, where was he this year? He was uh, with Eddie George at Tennessee State. Oh, he was the okay. offensive coordinator there. Okay. So. Uh, listen, SWAC schools... Have, mm-hmm. I don't I don't know how many of them are actually going to be good, but right. SWAC schools have done a f- great job of hiring just like fun names. Yep. Like Eddie George is one. Hugh Jackson is a fun name for a SWAC school. And then obviously Deion Sanders at Jackson State is about and they as were fun winners. as they Yeah. They, not only that, so their last home game, uh, I think they played Alcorn State. They had 58,000 people there. Right. Like they sold out their stadium. And, and I'm from Mississippi, from a suburb of Jackson. Like I don't ever remember anybody caring about a Jackson state football game, right? Like I don't ever remember anybody being like, Oh yeah. Jackson state's playing for something important. And they sold out their stadium and Deion Sanders is there. Like it's, it's, it would be, it would be fun to see. I mean, we got here in Vegas, we got a little bit of taste of of Howard coming out here and beating UNLV is like 41 point underdogs. Right. But like, I, I think Deion Sanders is fun. And I actually kind of hope Deion Sanders gets like a big time college football job in the future, just because I, I think he'd be insane and it would be a lot of fun to watch one way or the other. 
But it's like, I, I think it's fun to have the SWAC schools like Jackson State or Grambling yeah. State or if it's Eddie George, Tennessee State. Like, to have something that's, like, relevant and interesting, even if it's just head coaches that just have some name power. Right. Well, at least the name power gives them credibility, right? It gives them a little bit of credibility, and it makes a guy that may be under-recruited or not recruited at all by a certain other programs say, hey, you know what, I can go there and at least play for primetime, or I can go play for Eddie George or Coach Jackson, and it gives them something, some kind of hope. And so it's, I think it's exciting as well, and it's nice to see that, you know, they got that kind of response there at Jackson State. Was, uh, was Tennessee State good at all this year? Uh, they were okay. Okay. <laughs> they, 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 they got a long way to go as far as getting better, but uh, they, they didn't have the results that primetime did. Let's put it like that. All but. Right. Is, is Hugh Jackson going to track down Deion Sanders? Nah. Gonna knock him off? I think, I'm pretty sure they're in different divisions, so we need a SWAC title game next year. There you Hugh go. Jackson against Deion Sanders. Yes. Let's do it. See? I'm there. Get excited. I, I, I have been following you on Twitter and have been following you <laughs> tweeting about Hugh Jackson for a long time now, so... Just wanted to give you that opportunity. Cause, yeah. yeah, I'm excited. Coach Jackson's a good dude, man. I, I actually sent him a text the other night when I found out that uh, that he was going to be that coach, and just congratulations. I thought that was cool. You know, the real question is, can Hugh Jackson get in one of those Aflac commercials with Nick Saban? Right. I mean, you talk about, man, you, primetime is living his best life, ain't he? Jeez. <laughs> is there... Are there any two uh, more different college coaches than Deion Sanders and Nick Saban? No, not at all. Not <laughs> Polar opposites, right? Polar opposites. But Nick Saban looked like he was soaking it in as well. Yeah, get him in the same commercial. That's a good job. He's Q. Thanks for filling in, Q. We'll see for you sure. next week. Have Absolutely. fun with your eight hours. <laughs>